This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is Donia Anna County Sheriff Kim Stewart. She's the first female elected to the position in Donia Anna County and the first to serve openly as a member of the LGBTQN plus community. Now, welcome to the podcast, Sheriff Kim Stewart. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. This is, uh, I'm, I'm especially honored by this opportunity. Well, this is the beginning of what I'm hoping to be is uh, something that's going to go on for a long time. It's my first episode, my first recording, my first production of uh, this podcast, and you're the very first guest, so welcome. Um, you know, there's going to be plenty of time to get into all the all the details that you and I uh, talked about a few weeks ago. I felt kind of lucky to basically get a, a pre-interview with you when I when I invited you to come on the show, and we'll have a lot lot of time to talk about the the chronological stuff, starting from uh, several decades ago when you entered this earth. Um, but let's go back real quickly to get things started and set the stage because you are the sheriff of Doniana County first second week maybe of March uh, 2018 I opened the Sun News uh, Facebook page or maybe their website and I see that uh, four people have filed at the Doniana County Clerk's Office to challenge the incumbent um, who by that time pretty safe to say widely known and recognized to be inept uh, to say the least and um, really pretty unpopular, uh, given the events that had gone on um, up to that point. You were one of four people who filed. When did you decide you wanted to run for sheriff and why? Well, I have to uh, move back a little bit in time prior to March. Um, I had my own history uh, with Doniana County. I had been employed by them uh, back in uh, the early 2010s, and um, I had continued to have conversation with various elected officials. And in January of 2018, I was noticed that uh, one of the former sheriffs prior to Sheriff E. Hill would be uh, running again, had uh, announced apparently his intention to run again, and had announced a a candidate, if you will, for undersheriff at the same time. And uh, I was to put it bluntly, mortified that this person would be re-entering the ring after a 10-year um, time at the wheel. Uh, his his reign had actually been for 10 years, which is two years longer than most get. And uh, I made the offhanded remark to this elected official that I would lay down in the driveway in front of the station to prevent him from ever entering the building. And at the moment I said it, I realized it was just easier to run for office against him. So your mouth pretty much wrote a check that you felt obligated to cash? That's a good way to put it, yes. I kind of had to go down that path. 
Well, and I had actually forgotten about that, and, and, and I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that later. I don't think that um, you obviously feel free to, to, to tell the story as you see fit and, and give your reasons to the uh, answer questions that I've asked. I don't want, I want to avoid trying to go down the road of, of throwing your, some of your predecessors under the bus any more than is necessary or, or is uh, necessary for us telling the story. So we'll leave it at that uh, for right now. But to go on, four of you filed that day to challenge the incumbent. Um, were you concerned that given somebody has the edge as an incumbent is going to retain a, a certain amount of votes just simply because he's the incumbent? With four of you splitting that anti-incumbent vote, did you have concerns that there were too many of you in the field? I didn't have a concern there were too many of us. In fact, uh, you could look at it both ways. So I looked at it from the standpoint uh, that there were four others, the incumbent included, who would split the vote. Uh, they would each split the vote against themselves, and uh, it would give me um, the majority. So I never really uh, was concerned about how many people were uh, running against the incumbent. And I, and I have to say, if you were even out as I was a little bit between January and March, you would have known from public reaction that the, the current sheriff, though an incumbent at the time, didn't really hold a lot of favor with the community. So if he'd had his finger out on the pulse, he would have realized that uh, his chance was as good as the other three. Well, I, I, so what you're telling us is uh, I'm going to take is very much what I will, I'm going to coin the term right now, a very Kim Stewart-centric worldview. Yes, I, I think so. Uh, not even a glass is half full or half empty view, but sometimes uh, water's leaking out at the middle and we can just stop that leak. Well, in any case, uh, June whatever, I think it was June 6th, uh, 2018, the primary uh, day comes and you come out ahead. Your incumbent actually comes in third. <laughs> and pretty quickly, you've got to turn your sights onto a general election, which, if I remember correctly, uh, was about a 60-40 split. Yes, I believe it was. Uh, again, I never really got bogged down in the uh, numbers. I knew that there was um, a, a certain segment of the voting population that certainly supported him. Um but I went to a number of forums and public events with him, and it was really apparent to me that he could not articulate anything he had accomplished in those 10 years. Now, I'm not saying he didn't accomplish things. He was just unable to articulate it. And I think that voters, especially in 2018, were asking some hard questions and wanted some real specific answers. Well, in any case, none of that really matters now. January 1, 2019, you're sworn in as Doniana County Sheriff. Um, breaking molds, if you will, like I said, uh, first woman elected to that position. Uh, I would imagine that 170 years were coming up on the history of Doniana County, 170 years with the sheriffs. I would imagine somebody who's a member of the LGBTQN plus community probably has served, obviously not openly. In any case, you're the sheriff of Doniana County, and... We're gonna. You're obviously gonna have an opportunity to, to tell us all the great things you think you've done in the last year and a half plus. Uh, but I'm gonna throw a. I won't call it a curveball, maybe a slider, at you, and ask you if you were an outsider looking in, and you were gonna make a criticism of Kim Stewart as the sheriff of Doniana County in her first year and a half. What do you think? Maybe you have 
either, I don't want to use the F word, fail, something that you have yet to accomplish, maybe you thought you'd accomplish by this point, something that you haven't done that you thought you were going to, or something you just, you feel like you haven't done as well as you wanted to? Well, I think that um, I didn't, I don't know that it was a failure of action so much as a failure of knowledge. I I didn't have a lot of uh, firsthand knowledge for the last four years as to where where is that department now and how do I move it forward. So it was really... uh, a lack of institutional knowledge that I had. So things that I was hoping to just come in and, and move us towards, um, we had to kind of put the brakes on and uh, actually clean up some prob- prior problems that had been started during the previous administration. Um, I often say I look forward to the day when I'm just cleaning up my own mistakes. Have you made any of those? So far, I think I've made a mistake to go along with how things had been done in the past and not move out quick more quickly. So things that are systems and organizational issues that I don't think work in 2020 and may have worked in 1950, um, I probably should have moved out quicker uh, to just uh, move on past them without explanation. Now, you uh, brought in with you... Uh uh, under sheriff yes. uh, Jaime Casada was a sergeant at Las Cruces Police Department. I would imagine uh, there were a lot of reasons for for having him as your running mate and and to serve as your under sheriff for the first year and a half of your term. With regard to your predecessor, what I could see uh, in a lot of ways, not officially severing ties, but um, creating a situation where there wasn't necessarily open lines of communication or the type of cooperation with some of the surrounding agencies that we had become accustomed to in this area. Did you feel like that kind of gave you a foot in the door, at least with the Las Cruces Police Department, as far as repairing relationships? And did you have an opportunity to meet with some of the other state police, Sunland Park, Messiah Hatch, uh, Border Patrol, some of the other agencies in the area to try to build those bridges again? Well, we did. I think we've done pretty well at build, rebuilding them. I did them once I got in. Um, I think you bring up the point about the undersheriff position. No one told me that I didn't need an undersheriff. I, it sounds <laughs> kind of naive to say that. Most sheriffs in this state have undersheriffs. Um, and then when I got right down to it and looked at it seriously, it was um, all job descriptions regarding an undersheriff start with in the absence of the sheriff. And I'm not an absent sheriff. So it created a situation where um, maybe had I been better informed or I understood uh, what my mandate was, so to speak, as a sheriff, I may not have even gone down the path of having an undersheriff. So that said, bringing him in had no bearing on whether we repaired relationships with anyone. Um, He had a relatively low level of relationship and responsibility as a sergeant. So his world didn't mingle in that top echelon of of agency command to begin with. So we weren't building on anything that already existed. Now you just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you, and I am going to go ahead and ask it so I don't forget because it's, it's an important one, at least something that I found uh, pretty important. And then I'm going to go back and t- kind of talk about your, your start in life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I have noticed, uh, from what I can see, you seem to be more often than not, when I see you, 
what I call a uniform sheriff. And the first one that Donia Can- Donia Anna County has had since Juan Hernandez, who left office in either 2004 and 2005. Your predecessor and the, the man who pre- uh, preceded him uh, were not uniformed sheriffs. Talk about that. Well, I come from uniform, so my whole experience in law enforcement was essentially providing service uh, at, if you want to say this, at the lowest levels. So I don't mean that uh, to diminish the contribution. The fact is I spent my career serving the public, either in patrol or detectives or investigations. So to me, um, when I was uh, honored with the vote, of the electorate in this county, um, I had no second thought about not wearing the uniform. That's that's who I am. I'm the sheriff. Um, I need to be recognized as the sheriff um, wherever I go, and uh, I need to wear it proudly because um, all I can't very well ask the rest of the force uh, to not wear it proudly if I don't. It seemed to me, uh, without question, if you will, that I would do that. Well, before you were sheriff, you were Kim Stewart. Uh, Kim Stewart, I don't want to embarrass you by asking you how old you are. We'll just say you were, I, <laughs> I'm going to guess you were born in either the late 1950s or early 1960s. Uh, You're very kind. <laughs> or, or the early 1950s. I can keep going. I can keep you 1940s. That's okay. Okay. You, you're, you're so far so good. You are from Southern California. Yes. I believe you said, you told me before you grew up in Laguna Beach. Yes. And um, you were at some point um, it, during your teenage years, you said you uh, were a member of a transracial family. Yes. Uh, your father uh, is black. He's yes. an African-American man. And um, how much did that make you stand out? Well, uh, in so many ways, it's it's kind of hard to quantify. Uh, bear in mind, he is not my, was never, unfortunately, my biological father. I came out of Orange County, California, uh, extremely uh, conservative area, uh, the home of the John Birch Society. Uh, my biological father was a member of John Birch Society. He was a mover and shaker in the Republican Party. Uh, we were, I would say, upper middle class people. And uh, like a lot of families, and it was in the late 50s, we were uh, very fractured. We were very dysfunctional. It was very hidden. We looked like the perfect family, and yet um, that was not the case. And uh, I ended up uh, essentially in my uh, late teen years picking my own family. And uh, I was introduced to a biracial couple, and they had uh, three children, four children, excuse me. And... uh, I just sort of hung out there, and I have hung out there for 47 years now. So they that was a, to go into a biracial household from a John Birch Society household uh, was uh, eye-opening. And a lot of the things that I was raised for my very early years to believe uh, were, uh, they just pointed to me that those were myths, those were lies, those were myths, uh, all of those things. My uh, grandmother was out of the South where uh, I was raised to believe that uh, uh, whites did a blacks a favor by enslaving them so that we could take care of them and provide a better life. And here I'm as a teenager uh, in a family where we're going out to dinner and we're one of the few biracial families around. Uh, 
And I got to say, we were in a upper middle class uh, enclave, so there were not many uh, African Americans there at all. My, uh, I call him my foster father, the very successful um, black uh, businessman in the United States. He built a business from the ground up, which still lasts today. So I was uh, seeing both sides of the world at a very young age. Well, like your family, mine is transracial. Uh, my children don't look like my wife and me. So I have an idea of what you're talking about, going out to restaurants and maybe having people look at you. Right. Uh, we had an experience a couple of weeks ago that my wife and I kind of chuckle about now. But um, you go to college? Yes. Major? What did you study? I uh, went, well, you also have to figure my age, that I was not raised to go to college and have a career. Um, I was raised by a biological family who believed my role in life was to find a rich man and marry him because then our wealth could be combined. My job was to uh, bring wealth to our family. So uh, just by virtue of the fact of going to college, I was uh, stepping out. Now, my biological father was a college degree. He had a master's degree. Um, my grandfather was a surgeon. So it was not like I didn't come from people who valued education. But I was the oldest. I was a female, and I wasn't really expected to do much beyond find wealth. So by moving out, I decided that I'm going to have my own life, and I decided it, as I say, very early on by even picking my family. And uh, I went to the university. I uh, I was, uh, I, I, the first two years were uh, funded by my biological family, and when they didn't like how that was turning out, they stopped funding it. And I did manage to uh, fund the last two years by working and going to school. So many decades ago when you could actually do that, right? Yes. It, when a whole semester, I remember, clearly cost $800. Well, there you go. Yeah, at the University of California. <laughs> so I got my uh, uh, degree in history. Uh, my foster mother is an attorney, and uh, I kind of was not really pushed down that path, but that was sort of the path that I was going to pursue. At some point, you decide you're going into law enforcement. What year did you start? Well, I started through another uh, doorway, which was through fire. Um, I lived in the rural uh, hills, what were once rural of Orange County, California, and I was what was called a paid call fireman. Uh, today we might call it a volunteer fireman. If you lived within the uh, area of a particular station, uh, you could be trained as a full firefighter and go out on calls. And uh, starting at about uh, 22, 23 years old, I um, signed up in this rural area of Orange County, and I was a paid call firefighter. And it was through uh, interaction with law enforcement officers, primarily sheriff's deputies, who uh, told me essentially there was an easier way to make a living. Well, let me stop you there because, and of course I didn't know this about you, you started off as a firefighter, but I'm going to say we're talking early 1970s at this time, mid-1970s. Correct. Probably not a whole lot of a lot of other female firefighters. Well, because we were paid call and it, and it was really incumbent on could you do the job, we did have some a few women that were living in the area and we were um, given the same opportunities. Um, so there were a few of us, but the exception was made for fire 
uh, service by saying, well, these are paid call firefighters, so you don't have to meet CDF, California Division of Forestry Standards. And uh, so we kind of backdoored it, side-doored it. Did you feel at all, did anybody ever make you feel like you weren't welcome, you didn't belong, a woman doesn't belong here? No, because those scenarios require community participation to the extent that they were never uh, going to turn their back on someone who is fit and uh, able and willing. Uh, I never once felt that from the men. In fact, when I left, I was going to be trained to be an engineer, uh, which is the person in the old days who controlled the water. Wow. So I, they, I had a lot of, I think it would have opened a lot of doors for me. And uh, I even took some uh, fire departments for like Garden Grove, some of the major cities in Orange County, their test to pursue that path. So we're moving right along. Uh, what year is it that you finally get into law enforcement? Was there an academy then? How did it work? Well, I started applying in 1976, so I'm really aging myself. But uh, L.A. Sheriff and L.A. Uh, police were under consent decree. And what that meant was that the Department of Justice had essentially said to them, you're going to have to hire women and you're going to allow them to have equal opportunity to go onto the street. Prior to 76, there were no women in patrol. So I didn't start applying until I was assured I would go into patrol because I had no use and I didn't want to be a matron at the jail, as I called them. I didn't want to deal with just uh, juvenile crime. So that was the only two avenues open to women at that point. It took me four years to get hired, and uh, I was hired originally in 1980 by a small city um, on the uh, L.A. County, Orange County border. We're at the point during our interview right now where I get to ask an off-topic, spur-of-the-moment question that you're only going to get a few minutes to think about, or a few seconds to think about, <laughs> and you didn't know about this. No. So there are two rules. Number one, your answer cannot be Donald J. Trump. Okay. <laughs> Number two, once I say go, you have five seconds to give me your answer. You ready? I'm I'm there. Somebody who is in the news right now, doesn't have to be a politician, could be an athlete, pop culture, anything. Somebody who is making the news right now, somebody who's being talked about, you think is a complete and 100% clown, jackass, idiot, moron, is famous for all the wrong reasons. You got five seconds, go. Bill Barr. That did not take long. Ladies and gentlemen, there we have it. Bill Barr is our jabroni of the week. <laughs> Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. So you start off in a small town, and given some of the things we're talking about right now nationally with regard to law enforcement, you you told a story um, about being warned to avoid, uh, if you can, interacting with officers and or deputies from one particular neighboring jurisdiction. Um, 
Can you tell that story? Do you know the one I'm talking yes. about? Yes, 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 I do. Uh, as I say, I was hired uh, in 1980 uh, in a very small suburb of Long Beach, California. And uh, that particular part of uh, the geography, uh, the surrounding area was uh, managed or secured by Los Angeles Sheriff. And uh, there was a area... It used to be called Hawaiian Gardens. I I don't know if it is, but it was in the community called Lakewood. So we, the jurisdiction I worked in, bordered Lakewood. And uh, my training officers, who were uh, pretty old school guys, all guys, um, they we could we could hear their we could hear Los Angeles Sheriff's frequencies. We were aware when they needed help. Um, they could go through our central dispatch and uh, ask for assistance. And early on, I was told, don't go, don't go. Uh, I was told that uh, it would just mean trouble, that you would be involved in or called to witness things that you couldn't stop and that you couldn't uh, control. And uh, they're going to have to take care of their own um, their own issues. So I never went into Los Angeles jurisdiction. Such a different uh, world, if you will, from one county to the next. Very. Um, if you're okay with it, and it, tell me if you're not. You did tell me a story about happening upon a traffic stop or there was a domestic something. Yes, yes, there was uh, a domestic, and this was uh, across the intersection. So literally across the intersection was Los Angeles Sheriff. And uh, I, I'm coming up, it's the middle of the night, I'm coming up to the signal to turn right in our jurisdiction, and across in Los Angeles County is a woman, I will never forget it, blonde-haired woman with blood uh, streaked throughout her hair. I was running down her face as she was running to the intersection towards me, and uh, there there again, I, I kind of broke the rule. Uh, I pulled over, and uh, there was a man in the a car that was parked and she the female was screaming and I grabbed her and we got behind my vehicle and I didn't know if he was armed I didn't know what had happened and I alerted our dispatch and uh, within a few minutes LA Sheriff unit arrived and um, I said this woman is injured Uh, she has apparently been in a domestic disturbance with the person who's in this vehicle, which I had made no contact with him at that point. I had just basically secured the scene. And uh, he he was alone. I remember he had no partner. He went up to the driver, he said, uh, or the person in the vehicle, said, give me the keys, gave me the keys. And uh, he took, the officer took him, the deputy, and uh, went to the back of the car, told the the man in the car to get out, told him to get in the trunk of the car, slammed the trunk lid down, uh, threw the keys into uh, the bushes, and told the woman to find a way home. And it was the middle of the night. So that pretty much told me what my trainers told me would be the scenario over there. And I stayed away from there. And you beat that other pretty quickly, didn't you? I did. I left right away. You know, that is so amazing to think. We're talking about 40 years ago. Yes, we are. Um, I mean, I was six years old. Correct. Um, it's 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 just unbelievable to think there are actually people uh, alive today who experienced that, mm-hmm. including me. I didn't experience it, but I was alive at a time where that kind of stuff went on, and, and there would not have been the even a discussion of how many zeros are going to end up on the end of somebody's check. Um 
I have to imagine today's law enforcement officers, it's got to be really difficult, um, if anybody even thinks about it, to accept that there are people alive today uh, who may or may not even have to interact with law enforcement, who lived through things like that, who were who were victims of police misconduct. Uh, and not to say that police misconduct does not exist today, but uh, I think it's fair to say it's an outlier, and it's certainly not something that was done almost sanctioned. Uh, I mean, there are the, we're talking about the, the civil rights uh, era of the 1950s and 60s when uniformed police officers, agents of the state, were used to actually enforce racist laws, uh, turning dogs loose on people, uh, shoot, uh, spraying, hitting people with fire hoses. Um, I, I was having a discussion, I want to say maybe two and a half years ago, uh, were with my therapist. We were talking about, I was talking about a, uh, a documentary I saw on PBS about the Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, to think literally 50, maybe 51, 52 years ago, if you were a police officer, you would be required in some cases to actually go and arrest somebody for having a, an adult beverage and dancing with somebody who had similar pee-pee parts mm-hmm. or, or dressed in a yes. way that they weren't supposed to dress or like a, a gender they weren't supposed to identify with or believe that they were. And I think that that's something that, uh, in my experience, it's just hard to accept. And I think that people can easily forget. People who wear the uniform, people who wear a badge uh, can forget that, like I said, there are people alive today who experience that, who are on the wrong end of that. Well, not that there's a right end. Uh, <laughs> the, the, right. Both ends are wrong. Right. Uh, one is victim, though, and one is... Yes. is uh, whatever the opposite, whatever we want to call that. It's just a, it's amazing to sit here and talk to somebody who, who was part of uh, law enforcement at that time. Uh, of course, no reason to believe that you participate in anything like that, but th- you've witnessed things that today would, um, I, I would have to think somebody wouldn't even think about doing. Yes. I, I think we, one of the things we forget is that um, things have changed. I, I think it's really important uh, to focus on the fact that we have made some some really significant, dramatic, and needed change. I think that, um, I, you know, I brought up the fact that um, there was a level of dysfunction in the 50s and 60s that we pretended, especially as a white person in a white family at the time, that uh, everything was good. And when I hear people younger than myself uh, speak fondly of the the past, I'm going to point out that it, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Good for whom, right? Yes, good for whom. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a brief example. Uh, my uh, biological grandmother, who I said was from the South, who had this very uh, racist view, um, uh, wasn't real thrilled with me being a lesbian woman, especially being an out lesbian woman. And uh, yet uh, one of her uh, adventures, if you want to call that in life, was to go to some of the uh, nightclubs in in Los Angeles, uh, the gay bars and the lesbian bars. And she spoke fondly of dressing up as a man and going to these uh, clubs and pretending. I don't know whether she was pretending or not. But uh, uh, that's something the wife of a prominent Los Angeles surgeon uh, would never have spoken, would never have said to anyone but someone close to her like me, and it was okay. 
so, you know, when we talk about how things looked from this vantage point on the past, uh, let's let's always keep an open mind that there was a lot going on that uh, we were not always honest about. Along those lines, uh, talking about how things weren't always good for everybody, and we're talking about some of the basically state state sanctioned uh, misdoings of people in uniform. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, somebody who wants to be a law enforcement officer at a law enforcement agency in the United States, and let's take Doniana County Sheriff's Department is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the second largest sheriff's department in the state, has a standardized way of screening applicants. You have an application that you have to turn in, a written, uh, what amounts to a civil service exam, a physical fitness test, a psychological exam, a medical exam, an oral board interview, polygraph examination, and a uh, background investigation. Sounds pretty thorough. That's pretty complete. Am I accurate? Uh, as far as I'm aware, yes. Okay. So what? how many of those even existed when you became a police officer in 1980? Uh, the bulk of them did, and I suspect therein lies some of the problem, uh, that 40 years ago they were the same. Uh, there was the idea that we're going to uh, be very thorough and we're going to screen and we're going to uh, uh, get the right kind of person, air quotes, the right kind of person. So the process has changed in the sense that, for instance, psychological tests now are not allegedly gender-specific. They used to be gender-specific. So the reason I got hired is I had more uh, man-like or male-type characteristics. The, the was not a, a genderless blind uh, exam. So the the steps are the same. I think the question we have to ask ourselves, are these still important steps? And can we change those steps somewhat to get a broader, to, to reach a broader pool? And that has been my desire is to let's look at the steps and say, well, if you can't get over a six foot wall, should that really limit eliminate you from the pick. If you cannot um, uh, answer the questions the way, uh, in air quotes, everybody does, should you not be allowed to go on to the next step? The, the process is exactly the same. I think the question is, should we look at the results the same? So while we're on the topic, let's go ahead and continue with police reform, and we could probably do an 18-part series <laughs> just on that. Uh, it's no surprise to anybody if you've watched the news, scrolled through your Facebook feed, read a newspaper, listened to the radio, or, or maybe seen people marching outside your house. Uh, there are a lot of issues going on right now. Uh, and like I said, we could we could talk about this forever. Um, the defund movement. Again, we could talk about that forever. Has there been any rumblings uh, at county level? Have you heard anything from county commissioners, county management, uh, anybody who deals with the budget? Has there been anything officially uh introduced or talked about it so i think we're a part of the year where the budget starts july 1st or the, the fiscal year starts july 1st so probably is would be late for that uh, has there been anything officially that's been mentioned to you on the county level about slashing a budget decreasing a budget uh reallocation of funds well we went into uh, the budget talks as the pandemic was uh 
uh, ramping up, so to speak. So when we began talks with the county, it was January, February, and by March, uh, we were fully engulfed in the pandemic uh, process. So we, as a county office and departments, were pushed back to their previous year fiscal uh, budget allocation. And then on top of that, we faced, and uh, the term is, or the uh, amount of money is sort of a moving target, but between $400,000 and $700,000 cut on top of that. So the budget I had submitted for 2021 uh, was not even looked at. Uh, They went back to the 1920 budget and said, you will stick with this, but we're going to reallocate a number of these funds uh, from there on top of that. Now, I'm told that as of October 1, with the next quarter beginning, well, we will get a chance as an office, as will other departments, to uh, reapproach the county and ask about their uh, economic health and if we could go forward to restore some of those lost funds. So you're saying because of one dumpster fire, <laughs> the pandemic, you were basically spared, if you will, the the possibility of having to to adjust to a call for decreasing funds because of the other. Uh, and I don't I don't want to do disservice or disrespect to the issue of uh, civil rights and police reform because that's not the intent. So I won't call it a dumpster fire. But due to the other issue, the major issue that we're dealing with right now, not to mention the fact that it's a presidential election year. Yeah. Uh, you basically were given a reprieve from what I think we can all expect there to be at least some push for would be to decrease your budget or to reallocate funds away from law enforcement, especially with now securing funds for the crisis triage center that's opening up? Well, I think you have to realize that our our budget had remained fairly stagnant if you looked at it over a 20-year period. So in terms of hiring, uh, uh, 10 years ago, we actually had more uh, deputies than we have to today. So it's been kind of a peaks and valley uh, effort for the last 10 years. And would I say that we were really where we should be for a 2020 uh, department with 151 deputies and uh, another 60 support staff? No, we really aren't. So uh, while we may get some um, pressure, if you will, from the public to defund or reallocate further, um, you have to kind of accept the fact that we're 10 years behind that curve anyway. And that's something that I've thought quite a bit about. This well, is all but, to assume that law enforcement is properly funded to begin with. Now, if my goal today was to go uh, completely chronological and be all orderly, uh, then I have to say that I have failed miserably. <laughs> but um, there are certain things I do want to talk about uh, in the spirit of this podcast being about people who are mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Uh Fairly early on, well, you're still pretty early on in your in your term, uh, just over a year and a half into a four-year term. It didn't take long for you to run afoul, if you will, of what may or may not be an organized or somewhat not as organized group of New Mexico sheriffs. Um, the issue of the red flag laws, I believe, was the impetus for this movement. Um, there's a, something called the constitutional sheriffs, and it's something that's not just in New Mexico. I think if you read industry newspapers or, or uh, online, you know, websites or, or social media pages in law enforcement, that the idea of a constitutional sheriff is something that uh, you hear about in all corners of the U.S. 
Talk about your experience. What, what is a constitutional sheriff? Well, it, I think it depends on who you're talking to and what they, uh, whoever wants to embrace that uh, label, wants to give it. So constitutional sheriffs, if you uh, want to be specific, came out of the Posse Comitatus movement of the 70s. And uh, the, one of the biggest voices, if you will, for uh, constitutional sheriff sheriffing, I call it, was Richard Mack, who is out of Arizona. Uh, his spin essentially was that, or is, he's certainly still alive, um, that we as sheriffs are the last line of defense against federal uh, and state overreach, government overreach. So if you come into my county, whatever those borders are, I am more powerful than even the United States president. Uh, so you you take that little seed, and today, 30 years later, you see that uh, phrase and that term being co-opted. But what I found in New Mexico was, um, uh, for instance, early on, the Sheriff's Association during the Ted Bundy, or excuse me, not Ted Bundy, the... Gordian uh, slip there? Yeah, for, the Cliven Bundy uh, situation. Some New Mexico sheriffs allied with Cliven Bundy. And uh, then when that ran afoul of federal laws, you saw sheriffs at that time pulling away from that movement because, oh my gosh, the, the, uh, the PR from that wasn't so good. And then when I came in, you see that kind of uh, New Mexico Sheriff's Association starting to get new legs and new traction. They had distanced themselves sufficiently uh, from this PR nightmare of a few years earlier. So today, um, they will call themselves constitutional sheriffs, but I recently uh, had a email conversation with one and pointed out that uh, bringing uh, people in federal, I call them troops, uh, into Albuquerque and Bernalillo County uh, wasn't isn't that government overreach. And the comment I got back was that's not the kind of constitutional sheriffs we are. So it begs the question of which kind are we? I don't know. Well, more particularly to to your situation, and you know, Doniana County being uh, the most populous county, uh, it's maybe not surprising that out of the entire uh, second congressional district of which we are a part, um, Doniana County is the only county that is majority Democrat, tends to vote Democrat. So in that sense, um, Doniana County is a bit of an outlier. Uh, when it comes to the other counties within that congressional district. But with regard to your your issue and your term and your break, if you will, or not identifying or al- aligning yourself with uh, the other sheriffs was with regard to these red flag laws. And if my understanding is correct, your opposition to them wasn't necessarily that you support wholeheartedly supported these red flag laws or run on one side or the other is that you wanted to have a discussion about it. I wanted it to be enforceable and usable and something we could actually have a tool with. And so, um, I was not going to stop that effort singular, singularly. And those sheriffs tried as a group to stop it and got nowhere. And when I was asked uh, my opinion by those writing that, that particular law, I uh, said, yes, I'll give you my opinion. Now you can say, well, you didn't do anything 
to really make it better or worse. Uh, but my attitude is, as, as they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I refuse to be on the menu. Well, I can't really think of a better way uh, to describe or a better example of how polarized, how partisan, how black and white, right or wrong, left or right, we apparently have to be in the United States than this issue. The idea that right. you weren't just going to 100% pick a side and that you want to actually talk about it and make, make something workable is a really good example of that. And um, it's been a while since the Cowboys for Trump uh, lined up outside your office. <laughs> that's um, right. That's a good thing. And I heard they had good barbecue that day, so I was sorry I didn't walk across the street and avail myself of it. Well, I wouldn't doubt that. I think we're getting to the time now. We're going to have to wrap things up. I want to ask you just a couple more questions. What podcast do you listen to? Uh, well, uh, I, I actually listen to uh, Masterclass, uh, which are a series of podcasts and uh, podcasts on various topics. Uh, you subscribe monthly, and uh, I uh, listen to everything from uh, – uh, a ne famous negotiator and how to negotiate uh, people out of uh, criminal settings to uh, uh, how to write screenplays with Aaron Sorkin. So uh, I'm kind of an all-over-the-map kind of person. Hobbies? Uh, I I think I my biggest hobby is a Scrabble player, so if anyone would like to challenge me, I'm there. I run about 15 to 20 dimes, uh, games every day, and uh, I love it. So it's it's a bad habit or a good habit. Well, if you're inviting people to play with you, why don't you give a plug to whatever service you use, Ron? I'm assuming this is online? Yes, it's the Facebook Scrabble uh, online. Scrabble Go, they just changed it. Really pissed me off. But uh, uh, they changed the format a little bit, so it's not as clean and old school as it used to be. But please go on there and challenge me. I use my real name, Kim Stewart. Very well. Sheriff Stewart, you're the first guest of what I'm hoping are going to be you know, many, many, many hundreds of guests for uh, a very long time. I want to thank you for coming on, agreeing to be the first person. You're an extremely per easy person to interview, um, and I really appreciated it, but we've got to wrap it up. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. The next episode will be available on LasCrucesToday.com, Tuesday, September 8th, and will feature Army veteran, Veterans Affairs social worker, and MMA fighter, B.A. Wilson. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>